for Dynamic Deputies. Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast, run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. A warm welcome to all of our listeners and to my co-host Steve. Thanks Russell. Hello everyone, welcome and thank you for joining us once again. Now Russell, tonight we return to a theme that has come up regularly on our podcast and that is evidence-informed practice. Absolutely Steve. If listeners haven't heard it already, our episode with Catherine Morgan is a great place to start on this. In that episode, Catherine talks about what evidence-informed practice is and why it's so important. But today, Steve, we're going to be revisiting this topic and reflecting on how this culture can really come to life in a school environment. Now, as our listeners know, our personal domain is primary education, but we're always delighted to span that invisible divide and to talk to our fantastic colleagues working in the world of high schools or secondary schools, depending on your local terminology. (laughs) That is right, Russell. And today we are talking to Jade Pearce. Jade is a secondary assistant head teacher who leads on teaching and learning as well as CPD. Jade is evidence lead in her school and we've learned a lot about this role and her beliefs about education by reading her fantastic blog and following her on Twitter. Jade, it's lovely to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. So Jade, can you tell us a little bit more about the role you do now and the context in which you work? Yeah, so like you said, I'm um, an assistant head teacher in a large secondary school in Staffordshire and I lead on teaching and learning in CPD. So a lot of my role is looking at delivering CPD and organising our CPD. It's about spreading evidence-informed practice across our school and disseminating research evidence to teachers across our school as well. So that's my in-school role. And then I'm also an evidence lead in education for the Education Endowment Foundation. So I deliver courses for them and go into other schools and try to help them to look at evidence-informed practice. And then um, just in September, actually, I'm delivering the MPQ and leading teacher development for Ambition Institute as well. So try to do lots of stuff outside of school as well. Fair to say you keep yourself busy, Jade. (laughs) Keeping myself busy, yes, exactly. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Uh, We know you follow a lot of primary colleagues on Twitter and you're a primary school governor. Before we launch into today's topic in more detail, I'm really interested to see if you see the same appetite for evidence-informed practice across all age ranges of the profession. I would say yes to this. Obviously, I do interact more with secondary schools because I'm a secondary school practitioner. But I think that there are lots and lots of examples of primary schools who are really far down that journey to evidence-informed practice. So, like you said, I'm a primary school governor and the primary school that I work with in that role are really evidence-informed. They have basically rose and shine principles as their teaching and learning principles. And they look at retrieval practice. They look at cognitive load theory. I recently recorded some um, CPD for the key that's called idea stream i think they're kind of video cpd and that's all for primary schools and that was on cognitive load theory so i think there's a really big appetite for evidence-informed cpd specifically for primary schools and um, i think there's so many brilliant primary school colleagues on twitter people like Blake sharma john hutchinson emma turner who are really flying the flag for evidence-informed practice in primary schools i think that it's obviously looks a little bit different Mm -hmm. and we've got to take kind of generic strategies and think well this might be applied differently in a primary school but certainly I think the appetite um, is definitely there. Awesome and you mentioned Emma Turner there who's one of the best voices for that nuanced viewpoint in terms of what does this need to look like in different age ranges? And that's something she's blogged about brilliantly recently. Yes. So we're all sat here as people who are really enthusiastic about evidence-informed practice. 
But what would you say to teachers who feel that the rise in evidence-informed approaches doesn't allow room for them to express themselves or to be impulsive in the classroom? In essence, I'm really interested in whether you feel the science of teaching still allows space for the art of teaching to thrive. I think that's a great question. And I think that can often be a worry. And I can imagine it a worry, especially in primary school, where teachers have a lot of freedom. You know, you've got your class for the whole day, your timetables may be a bit more flexible. You've got year groups where you're not having to focus on terminal exams. You know, I, I actually only teach year 11, 12 and 13 now, you know, all of which will have terminal exams. So you feel a bit, you've got to be a bit more strict with what you're doing. But in primary school, I can imagine that one of the main things we we enjoy as teachers in that role is is that kind of level of freedom i think that you can have both the science of teaching and and the art of teaching and i think really it comes down to first of all what we mean by evidence-informed teaching so i think it's really important to point out that when we say evidence-informed we don't just mean that you are taking evidence and saying that it's got to be applied in a, cer- a certain way in schools and and actually we also mean that it it's not just evidence. Evidence informs means that we combine research evidence with teacher experience and that those two things are equally as important. And then that we recognise that those ideas have to be tailored to the context. So I think if you look at that, there's definitely room for creativity and teacher autonomy there. I also think we've got to realise that when we say evidence informed practice, really, it's a, it is an overarching strategy like retrieval practice and just the idea that We know that it's important to revisit our prior learning from memory, but there's no strict agreement on the very best way for that to be implemented. And then that has to be left up to different subjects, different teachers. And like we said, that will look different in different classes, in different age ranges. So there's certainly a chance for teachers there to have creativity about how they implement those strategies in their classroom. And then also, I think it's really important that When we say maybe the art of teaching, a lot of what I think of then is how we interact with our pupils and those really strong and positive relationships. And actually, evidence-informed teaching, even things like retrieval practice, it has to be built on those really strong relationships with your children. So you can still um, value that side of teaching along with evidence-informed practice. So for those reasons, I think that actually it's the science of learning and evidence-informed practice really still allows for that creativity that art of teaching as well 100% I agree with that completely Um, and Jade I guess you could say we all begin our careers quite ideologically driven we have these certain practices that we're naturally drawn to and how we're going to deliver it how do you think we could get colleagues to be willing to change their default approaches based on those best bets that are supported by academic research? Yeah, so again, I think this is a really good question. And this is something I get asked a lot on Twitter. And it seems like we haven't dealt with that. You know, I speak a lot about what things are like at my school now. And we are at a place where teaching together is evidence informed on the day that the new charter college of teaching impact magazine came out i think i had three teachers email me and say have you read this article it's really really good make sure you look at it it's stuff that we've been talking about at school um you know we we have teachers who want to go off and do evidence informed professional development and that kind of thing but it wasn't always like that and we have had to bring people along along with us and part of that has been changing them from this default Mm. idea so first of all i think you can do that with how you introduce people to the idea of evidence-informed teaching and making it clear what it is and what it isn't, which is 
similar to what we've just spoken about you know it's not really really prescriptive it's not everyone starting their lesson with 10 retrieval questions every lesson and, and shoehorning something into Rosenstein's principles and then I think it's about explaining to them why evidence-informed practice is important it does give us those best bets it helps us to look at practices which haven't been helpful to learning that we need to move away from but also from a teacher's point of view it can make us feel more confident it can make us make us feel more competent it can reduce our workload so there's real benefits for teachers as well I think then it's about how you introduce people to specific practices and there's two things I think well that in my experience have been really important and that we've kind of learned over time the first is to introduce why the practice is effective and look at any theory behind it so for example when you're introducing retrieval practice I think it's really important that teachers have got a good understanding of the cognitive science model of memory and they understand that difference between the working memory and the long-term memory and they understand why that retrieval is so important and I think that then helps teachers to actually understand oh I can see why this practice is likely to be effective, why it is important. And then what we've also found, and we've changed our approach to this over um, the last kind of five or six years, is that our staff really appreciate being given the chance to look at real research. They're not just me standing up in the, the front of the hall and saying, oh, the research says that there's this thing called the testing effect, and this is what the testing effect is, but actually looking at real specific examples of studies. What was the experiment? What was the controlled trial? What was the method? What were the results? And I think that can really help, again, to be clear with people about why you're asking them to implement certain strategies. And then, again, it goes back to giving teachers real autonomy about how they implement a certain strategy in their teaching so that they don't feel like they're being to do something which they don't feel fits their class or they don't feel fits their subject or their to- or a certain topic. So I think that can make people be willing to change their practice a bit more. And then I also think as well, not just uh, letting people engage with maybe one study, but really letting them choose which elements of evidence-informed practice they're most interested in and what do they want to look at in their practice. So we do a lot of our CPD now where you can choose, oh, I want to go to a session on cognitive load theory, or I want to go to a session on feedback, or I want to do some reading independently on the most effective form of homework. And allowing them to to do that, I think, is really important. And now there will always be people who are really wedded to a certain type of practice. So what springs to mind here, for example, is discovery learning. If you trained when I trained or before I trained, which is like 15 years ago now, we were at the height of this idea that you have to let children discover new information for themselves. And if you just told pupils information, they would never learn it. Well, they're not doing anything with that information. How could they possibly learn it? And for some people, that's how they, they have been taught for, you know, and they've been taught themselves like that at school. And then they've taught like that for, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years. And I think it is difficult to get people to try try and move away from that. So what I think there is that you do all those things I spoke about at the start, you know, you introduce them to the research, you allow them to engage research themselves, you give them choice, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes you have got to rely on the fact that evidence-informed teaching is a whole school priority. For us, it's every teacher's performance management objective. So teachers have got to engage with evidence-informed priorities that we've specified. And uh, what we've often seen is that once teachers do start to use these strategies, maybe initially they don't, they don't want to as much, but it's the whole um, success leads to motivation rather than the other way around. It's I think it's the same with teachers that you use these strategies and you think, 
my God, the kids remember way more. And normally, if I've talked about this two weeks later, they'd have forgotten it. But actually, they haven't forgotten it. Or, gosh, normally, they that would take me ages to, to get them to learn that content. But the music this instruction, it's been really quick. And now I can move on to something much more in-depth. So I think there's there's something to do with that as well. Yeah, I think that last point there is key, that idea that, when we see the benefits of a new approach to our students is you know it's the most motivating thing of all steve i know you used to have a colleague who would mm-hmm. challenge you very hard on new initiatives but you'd always say to me that they'd become kind of your biggest supporter once they tried it out and seen the benefits to their students yeah absolutely and look let's face it we're all in this to get the best results for children in education so if we're seeing results by a, a a tweak to practice and what's not to like. Yeah, and exactly that. And sharing good practice really helps as well. I mean, even with really on board colleagues, I had um, I had a meeting today actually with one of our um, middle leaders and she is super evidence informed. Like she'll share blogs and stuff with me that I haven't um, looked at yet. And she's um, a mentor on the UCF programme. So she's, she's brilliant. And um, I'd suggested in a departmental meeting of the day that their department do um, a booklet for retrieval practice. I said, I think that's the best way that you can organise it. We're really focused on moving from factual retrieval to higher order retrieval. And if you do your retrieval practice in an ad hoc way, it's really difficult to make sure that you do that. And you do that in like a, a retrieval practice curriculum, I've kind of called it, where you have your your new content curriculum then running alongside that you have your retrieval practice curriculum which makes sure that it's all spaced correctly and that you you go from factual and guide guidance fade basically all the way to higher order i I think it needs a bit more structure so i was trying to say well the best thing i think the easiest thing to do is print up do it make it for every topic print it all off and put it in a booklet because it's done for you then you don't it's no spreadsheet it's not really complicated you're not thinking oh gosh where am i what have i done just factual and what have i done higher order on because it's all organized she didn't like the idea of booklets at all. She really thought they were um, really uh, inflexible. You know, didn't like the idea of not being able to change things. I said, no, 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 come, come down and see what we do with the kids. And showed her a couple of examples of the kid work, kids work, and she could see the kids using some of the booklets in lessons. And uh, she left saying, actually, I'm, I'm going to do a retrieval practice booklet, and I'm also going to do a lesson booklet. You've completely sold me on it. <laughs> so I think it's not it's not necessarily just um, certain people either. It's certain practices that even the most on board people will still struggle with certain things yeah yeah and very often that challenge isn't personal it's not about egos it's simply someone really needing to get their head around the idea and yeah. make sense of it for themselves first and actually it would have been fine if you'd have turned around and said no I'm, I'm still not a fan you know it's not something that we were enforced in whole school it was just my advice so mm. more than welcome to, to try something different so I think it's being open-minded to that as well Yeah, great. And I know Steve's going to pick back up on your points about autonomy again shortly. So that'll be interesting to look at in a bit more depth. Now, one thing that always comes up on this topic is the issue of time. In your school, how do you go about distilling and communicating the research and evidence in a way that allows your colleagues to manageably engage with them? And how do you know that they're not just kind of playing along with the whole process, but really taking value from evidence-informed CPD? Yeah, so great question. I'm really passionate about time and workload for teachers. I think that we have got to make teaching a profession which you can do without it being your whole life now we say this recording a podcast at (laughs) nine o'clock on an evening and i think that's fine and if you choose to do these kind of things in your spare time that's brilliant but i think that we've got to make teaching a profession that you can do well without 
not really seeing your kids or, you know, not really having a weekend. So I'm super passionate about that. And actually, the first part of this is nothing to do with evidence-informed teaching. It's about removing all the workload. You know, if you want your teachers to spend time engaging with evidence, what else are you going to take away? So in my school, for example, we no longer do written feedback well, because the evidence doesn't support that anyway. Uh, we no longer do um, written comments on reports for pupils. All, all those kind of things, you know, our, our, our teachers don't have to cover lessons. We've got in-house cover supervisors, so we never really expect them to cover. Um, they only do a certain amount of meetings a week. They only do um, a certain amount of duties a week. You know, we really try to strip back and minimise everything that we can that isn't going to make a difference to teaching and learning. So I think that's probably the first point. And then even when you've done all that, it is still very unlikely that all but the very most enthusiastic and it's not the enthusiastic isn't the right word because we've got super enthusiastic teachers but they still don't go home and read a whole book at night time they're happy to read a blog they're happy to read a, you know an article or a paper that you might send them we've got a really good teaching and learning library there's probably about four of us that use it at school and that's in my school where teachers are super enthusiastic so unless they like really interested in a certain subject at you know certain area of teaching or learning they don't really want to take home whole teaching and learning books. So I think it is super important, like you said, to distill that research evidence into a format which is um, easy to use. So I do that in a couple of ways. So first of all, anything that I read, so a book, for example, I summarise and then everyone gets sent the summary and that's loads of them now you can download from from twitter that's not to say to people to not read the book because obviously you get so much more out of reading the book yourself but it's more like a read the summary see what you're interested in it might just be one chapter it might you might actually think this is actually a book that i do want to spend some time reading on so i'm going to do that so so i do um book summaries and then we do i've done a series of like a, an introduction to guides and that was really for teachers that are new to the professional brand new to evidence informed teaching and learning and um, i think it can be super overwhelming when you're starting on this journey to think oh my god i've got to know about uh, cognitive load theory i've got to know about explicit instruction i've got to know about retrieval practice spacing interleaving literacy feedback etc etc there's so so much so i just did a little series of um guides which was a, like a, you know a one-page introduction to, to cognitive load theory if you want to know the very basics these are the very basics and this is some, some kind of further reading that you might do um, which i think is helpful and then i think it's about distilling that evidence-informed teaching in CPD as well. So I don't want to contradict what I've said here. really like our teachers to engage in, in uh, research evidence themselves, and we like to give them the opportunities to do that. But you can go through five or six papers in a CPD session where you summarise the findings without every single teacher having to read those five or six papers. So I think that's really important. And then... I think it's about giving them, giving teachers the time to actually engage in that evidence. So you can't just expect people to be reading stuff, you know, in their own time. Um, and we do that in a number of ways at our school. So I apologise if this is repetitive because people will definitely have heard me talking about this before. But we have um, what we call flexi inset days. So basically our two inset days at the end of the year, you don't come to work if you've accrued those hours over the year. So you have the whole school year to accrue 10 hours. And you then, then you break up for a summer two days early, essentially. And we give people lots of opportunities um, to accrue those hours. And we do basically a research session where you can come and read a piece of research and then discuss it and discuss the implications for your practice. We do a pedagogy session, which is someone presenting normally about a certain practice. And then we discuss that and we'll watch 
changes do we need to make to our teaching? What do we do already that's really good? What does this look like in one department? What does it look like in another department? And then we actually let staff accrue those hours through independent reading. So if you've read a paper, a book, a blog, whatever it is, that actually accounts for those hours as well. And that's really to reward staff for doing that kind of independent reading and give them at least something back for the reading that, that they are doing. So I think that's really important. And then the question, the part of the question you asked about how do you know they're not just playing along and they're really taking value from the evidence-informed teaching and learning? I think that brings us to quality assurance. Now, I hate the phrase quality assurance and I need to come up with something new. I can't I haven't, I haven't put enough thought into it because quality assurance to everyone means lesson observations that used to be graded and now we've kind of moved away from graded but lots and lots of schools are still doing one-off lesson observations and they still feel really really high stakes because you've got someone in your room and okay they're not telling you it was outstanding or satisfactory but they're still judging your teaching aren't they so it's really trying to move away from that and, and quality assurance in our school now is is moving away from that so we don't do any formal lesson observations we don't link any observations of teaching to performance management and we actually don't ever judge the quality of teaching so we will never say that was a good lesson they're a good teacher everything now is done to be developmental so when we do lesson drop-ins, it is just, we're popping in, we're trying to find good practice to share. We might give you one or two things that we think would have made a difference to that lesson. And if you want to use that going forward, you can do it. And if you don't, you don't have to. And we also look for things over the whole school. What do we need to do? What, what do we need to feed forward into our CPD? So whilst they're not judgmental, you can obviously get a really good view of what is going on in your school from popping lessons, from speaking to teachers, from speaking to pupils, um, from looking at work that pupils have produced with the teacher. And I think that can help there. Perfect. Honestly, great answer. And if anyone's not accessing your resources, Jade, from Twitter, they really should because they are seriously awesome resources. So please, anyone who's listening access them to check them out they will go a long way thank you and now it takes us back to what we were talking about earlier about autonomy because one of the potential tensions of evidence-informed practice is around autonomy we know that teachers will feel more motivated to do something if they feel that there's some ownership over it so how do we push a particular teaching and learning agenda while also allowing teachers to make some personal choices about how it would look to them yeah, so I really like this because I think it's it's really important. And I think this is an error that is really easy to make as a well-meaning senior leader. If you're leading teaching learning in your school and you're super passionate about it being evidence-informed, it's really easy to be really heavy-handed and you just want people to do X, Y or Z and then you really easily lose autonomy. So the first thing that I would say is, You've got to remember that what you want people to implement is a quite a wide ranging strategy or principle. It's not something super specific. What I mean by that is we know that retrieval practice is effective. We know that verbal feedback is effective. We know that spacing is effective. What we don't know is that every single lesson should start with five retrieval practice questions. So I think it's remembering that it is the general strategy that we want people to implement not some super specific practice so I think that's really important I think that again we've got to make sure that teachers do understand why 
each practice is effective and what are the what we might now call active ingredients where do they have to be tight where can they not change things so if i look at retrieval practice well it's got to be done from memory obviously it's got to be low stakes you should give corrective feedback it helps if it's both factual and higher order so they're the kind of things that you want to say to teachers what i want you to do retrieval practice this is why this is why it works these are the conditions under which retrieval practice is most effective but after that, how teachers implement retrieval practice should be up to them. And it should be trusting them as experts to make the best decision for their subject and for their class. Like in my school, I would way rather the history department decide how to best implement retrieval practice in history because they're actually history teachers. And if you're in a primary school, I would way rather my early year specialist decide what retrieval practice should look like in early years and my year six teachers decide what it should look like in year six rather than one person trying to say that it should look what it should look like in every single year or obviously that it should look the same. And when we talk about it, saying that it should be the same is, is obviously ridiculous. And I don't mean that to insult anybody. And I understand why schools want consistency. It's easy to judge. It's easy to control. Um, so I get that. But I think when you say right, well, retrieval practice is going to look the same in reception as year four and year six, or in English as in PE, as in music, as in technology, as in art. It's clear that that should not be the case. Um, so I think trusting te your teachers as experts and giving them autonomy over how to implement those general principles, uh, those general best bets is really important. And then I think as well as that, not just giving autonomy over how they implement these practices, but also, like we've discussed, giving people autonomy over their CPD is super important and over what their professional development focuses on. And yes, we all want to do some CPD that drives toward, towards our whole school teaching and learning priorities, but there's got to be some choice in that. People will be strong in some areas and feel like they don't need much in one area, maybe, but we'll want to do something in, in other areas and we've also got to give scope for them to look at things maybe outside of our teaching and learning priorities as well so I think those two areas are probably the most important. Brilliant great advice you know the example you gave there about retrieval literally happened in my school only recently so we've got retrieval as a CPD focus at the moment and we've been looking at it within CPD groups which are made up of teachers from a range of year groups and we looked at the science of retrieval and then shared a whole load of retrieval techniques and sort of said so how might this look in reception or how might this look in year six? And that was a really good discussion. And then the plan is to keep coming back to kind of what people have been trying in classes and sharing what's working in our different phases or indeed, as you say, different subjects, because it's got to look different in different subjects, I think. Yeah. OK, so we mentioned teaching and learning priorities there, and I'm interested to know what evidence informed priority has had the biggest impact across your school and what made it particularly successful. OK, so I'm gonna, we've got four teaching and learning teaching learning priorities at the moment so I'm going to choose two sorry I'm cheating on my answer to your question <laughs> no problem so I've gone for retrieval practice obviously we've spoken about that quite a lot already and that is because of the huge impact that I think that, that strategy can have on the long-term retention for pupils and I do think it is probably one of the most impactful evidence-informed teaching learning strategies so it is because of that but more than that if you understand retrieval practice properly 
then you understand lots and lots of other evidence-informed practices because it basically requires a really good understanding of the cognitive science model of memory. You've got to understand there's a working memory, there's a long-term memory. It's really important to transfer information from the working memory to the long-term memory. We do that through rehearsal and practice, but also actually it's really important to go from the long-term memory back into the working memory. So I think it can be almost like a gateway. If you understand that one practice, you understand lots and lots and lots of other practices as well. And then also because it leads to a focus on long-term learning over short-term performance. And that, I think, is a huge idea in evidence-informed learning. So before we introduced retrieval practice, because before that, we, like lots and lots of secondary schools, we had a big focus on kind of year 11 interventions and, you know, cramming and, re- and revision sessions right at the end of year 11. And retrieval practice helped, helped us to move away from that because they're just not needed. You know, if you've done retrieval practice well for a couple of years, you shouldn't need to be cramming and doing all those revision sessions. But that helped to change it the whole culture that we're not looking for performance within a lesson we're looking for long-term learning over over a really big period that links to actually one-off lesson observations are a complete waste of time so they're not showing us about anything about learning and then it links to actually it's not year 11 it's important because if you can get retrieval practice and learning done well in year 7 8 9 10 year 11 should be easiest year it will look after itself so i think focusing on retrieval practice yes it is going to impact pupils and and their outcomes and their knowledge but actually I think it's got lots of elements about the really amazing things about evidence-informed teaching and learning so that was my first one and then my second one was feedback and like I said have moved away from written feedback and that's not to say that written feedback is ineffective it's not I think that written feedback can more easily be done badly by that I mean you write a comment which students don't really understand You can't write that much because you've only got a certain amount of time. People don't really look at it because you're not saying it to them directly. You're not giving them an instruction directly. And obviously it takes hours and hours and hours. So um, I think focusing on feedback has made a huge difference. Yes, to better feedback. I think our feedback has improved. But again, I think it's wider than that. This idea that actually... One of the main reasons that we want to use verbal feedback is because we do not want our teachers spending three hours a night working. We want you to be able to see family, to have hobbies, to take time off work, to sit in front of Netflix, if that's, you know, whatever you want to do. And that kind of led on to that permeating everything that we do. So how we know this is really important and we've done it with feedback. How else can we reduce workload? How else can we improve well-being? How else can we make sure we've got this culture of work-life balance? So again, I think it's, something initially that you started off for pupils but actually has much wider implications i pretty much feel i can hear listeners cheering to what you just said then jay it so resonates absolutely and um, in primaries we're obviously generalists and i know christopher such has referred to subject knowledge as the elephant in the room we kind of all know we should do more work on this with staff but we often avoid it and instead choose to focus on more general pedagogy Is this an issue at all with secondary colleagues too, or is it assumed that your teachers will be expert enough in their areas of specialism to not need any CPD on subject knowledge? Yeah, I love this because I think subject knowledge can be really easily missed out of the CPD discussion. And I think actually it's as equally as important as teaching learning pedagogy, I suppose. Um, But first of all, what I would say, you know, if primary school teachers look at secondary school teachers and are impressed with their depth of knowledge, secondary school teachers are equally impressed with the breadth of primary school teachers' knowledge. I went into my... um, 
the school that I'm a governor at the other day, we were looking at curriculum and geography and curriculum in MFL. And obviously they're brilliant at geography and they're brilliant at MFL, but they also know loads about history and they know loads about maths and they know loads about English and they know loads about art. So I think that kind of feeling of being super impressed with uh, your colleagues' subject knowledge is, is definitely comes from secondary teachers towards primary teachers as well. So because of that, I would argue that all teachers need to work on their subject knowledge and that includes the depth of their subject knowledge. So even at secondary, so I'm a business studies teacher, so I teach business studies and economics. You might be teaching business studies and economics and you might have a business management degree. And There's actually very little of the content that you're teaching that you did to a degree level. So I think there's always things that we need to improve our subject knowledge on. And even actually, if, if they did match quite closely, I'd say it's that uh, what we now call hinterland knowledge, you know, that additional knowledge, those stories, those case studies, those examples that we we, we always need to work on. So maybe we're really, you know, I've been teaching 15 years, I might have taught the same topic 50 times and, and my knowledge of that topic will be absolutely fine, but, but I can always bring in new examples and I can always find different case studies and that kind of thing. Um, so yes, I think it's your priority for, for all teachers. And we um, use what we call subject knowledge and pedagogy sessions at my school. And this is not my idea at all. I stole it from uh, Durrington High School from Sean, Alison and Andy Tharby, I think, who had introduced it there. And it's basically the idea that your subject teams in our school, because obviously it's a secondary school, meet regularly and they look at what they're teaching over the next however many weeks or whatever and any tricky topics and they look at the subject knowledge that you need to teach that well and then the best way to teach it. And I think that's really powerful. You know, it's not this general pedagogy, this gen- this general teaching and learning strategy. It is actually for this topic that we've got to teach in two weeks' time, what do we need to know? And what are the best case studies? What are the best examples? What's the best explanation? Where are the misconceptions? What do students tend to struggle with? What's the best way to help them to overcome those struggles? So I think that's um, that's super, super powerful as well. And then also, actually, sorry, <laughs> one more point. As a senior leader now, our subject knowledge is super important of the departments that we land manage. So it's like a new challenge now, actually, that you're as a senior leader you have got to be super knowledgeable of the departments that you line manage because otherwise how can you discuss teaching and learning how can you make judgments about teaching and learning not on the quality but just on what's going well or what needs to be improved and how can you have those really deep and meaningful conversations with with teachers and you middle leaders so that's kind of another element now of, of subject knowledge and that's come from um Mary Meyer and John Thompson's book, you know, the her kind of series. I know they've got a primary one coming out, so I'm super to read that. I think it's this idea now that as a senior leader, you have got to have a really good knowledge of all subject areas, really. So super important for everybody. Great, excellent answer. You got me thinking there about misconceptions as well and how I can know a lot about my subject, but knowing those kind of typical pitfalls children fall into is often something you only gain confidence with when you've been in a year group for a couple of years. So you might have taught in year six, for example. So you've covered the most kind of complex subject knowledge within primary schools, but then you drop down to say year four, like I did a few years ago, and suddenly you have to figure out which steps in learning children are likely to struggle with at that stage of their education. It's a, it's a real learning curve. So uh, as a final point, Jade, I wanted to ask you about two approaches I've been thinking about lately, and I'm curious as to whether they're things you've dipped into as part of your evidence-informed culture. The first is appreciative inquiry. So this idea of looking for existing good practice and building on that within your school, and also collaborative inquiry, which can, of course, look very similar, but this idea of really promoting the collaboration of your colleagues in the school. 
Yeah, so I really like both of those practices um, for different reasons. So I'll discuss each one in turn. So first of all, the kind of appreciative inquiry, sharing best practice, I think is really important. It's something that we do a lot in my school. So for our four teaching learning priorities, we're always looking for good stuff to share. Now, the obvious reason for that is that you've got something that's worked well in one area of the school or from one teacher. And so you want to other teachers to use that because if it works well, hopefully it'll work well elsewhere. But I think there's other reasons for that as well and it's all about um like keeping momentum it's the equivalent of narrating the positive to me you know when we go into our classrooms now we know that it's way more effective to point out the good things that people are doing rather than focus on the a smaller number of pupils who maybe haven't started the task and I feel like it's a little bit like that that everyone kind of gets swept along with oh look what everyone's doing it you know this department are doing this and this department are doing this so yes it is sharing good ideas and that makes it easier for teachers um but also it's, it's keeping that momentum I think and building towards your priorities however I think it's super important if you are going to share good practice you really discuss why it's worked what conditions has it worked in and what are those active ingredients that has made it work there's no point saying oh science did a really good um i don't know whatever it is retrieval practice activity or form of feedback or um they this is how they teach vocabulary in science and it's worked really well because you only get a really superficial understanding of that practice so it's got to be shared with a commentary about what worked why did it work etc i think that's really really important and that prevents that kind of superficial um, understanding or those lethal mutations that we know can so easily occur in teaching. And then collaborative inquiry. Yeah, again, I think it's really important. And, and I think different forms here are super important. So we have in our, what we call a teaching and learning inquiry group. It's one of our kind of voluntary teaching and learning groups that teachers can attend if they want to. And we have one focus throughout the year. So our focus this year is questioning and checking for understanding. In the past, it's been um, verbal feedback or uh, those, those kind of things. So we take like one kind of strategy. Everyone reads something. So we share the load and that you don't have to read everything. Everyone feeds back on what they've read. And then we decide two or three strategies that we want to implement in our teaching over the course of the next however many months. And we come back and discuss it and think about what's worked and what hasn't worked. And we reflect on it. And then I also think collaboration in terms of shared lesson planning and resources is super important. One, because, again, you get that sharing of ideas, different approaches, et cetera, but also, again, in terms of workload, if you've got eight teachers teaching year eight science, do not make eight teachers plan the same year eight science lesson. <laughs> Let one or two of them do it together, you know, three of them do it in a team, um, and then everyone can share that. So I think it's really important for that as well. And then things that we don't do in my school, but actually we probably should do, like peer observations are really important. Research has shown that peer observations and peer coaching, which is obviously quite popular now in schools, can be really beneficial and, and is a really nice way of removing that kind of judgmental element of someone popping in to watch you and, and that kind of thing. So I think there's lots of ways that collaboration can be really powerful in schools. Another marvellous answer. Now, Jay, before you go, we have to acknowledge the brilliant news that Bloomsbury was smart enough to ask you to write a book. <laughs> Do tell us more about that as we can't wait to read it. Yes, thank you for that comment, first of all. So, yes, I do. I have written a book and the book is called What Every Teacher Needs to Know, How to Embed Evidence-Informed Teaching and Learning Across Your School. And really, it's in three parts. So the 
first part is a summary of lots of really important teaching and learning papers and the aim is to kind of do some of the things we discussed tonight to give lots of teachers and leaders access to evidence-informed teaching and learning without having to read you know every single paper every single blog every single book because that can be super overwhelming and then the second part looks at individual aspects of evidence-informed teaching and learning and it really tries to distill the research into why does this technique work so it gives you that really good level of understanding and how can it be implemented most effectively and what might that look like in a classroom so trying to bridge that gap I think between what the research says and, and how we can actually implement these ideas really well and then the third part is about how you can kind of spread that across your department or across your school so it looks at CPD and recruitment and uh, trusting your colleagues and all, all those kind of things that we've spoken about tonight. And it sounds to me like it will feel really relevant for primary colleagues as well as secondary teachers too definitely thank you i hope so amazing well jade we've had a ball talking to you you have such a great precision in the way you explain big ideas and well we've learned loads talking to you so thank you how can people connect with you if they've enjoyed the podcast uh, so probably the easiest way is just by twitter so i am at pierce missus on twitter and that's probably the best way awesome thanks jade pleasure thank you so much for having me i've loved that the dynamic deputy. Mm-hmm.